Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and today I am truly honored to welcome to the show Mike Sarali, I believe that's how it's pronounced, you'll have to correct me, and George Randall, who are the authors of The Talent War, and I have it on my Kindle. I've, I've been reading it all weekend long, and I'm going to ask them to share insights about and from the book. Now, Mike is the CEO of EF Overwatch which is an executive search and talent advisory firm, and he's a leadership consultant with Echelon Front. He is a former recon Marine and retired U.S. Navy SEAL officer with 20 years of experience in special operations, including the Elite Joint Special Operations Command. Mike served 15 years as an officer in the SEAL teams and five years in the U.S. Marine Corps, as an enlisted recon marine and scout sniper before receiving his commission in the Navy. He served in SEAL Team 3, Task Unit Bruiser, alongside extreme ownership authors Jocko Wilnick and Leif, I think it's Leif, Leif Babin, where he led major combat operations that paid a, played a pivotal role in the Battle of Ramadi in 2006. Mike again deployed with Task Unit Bruiser in 2008, and led historic combat operations in Seder City. Guys, I know where Lafayette, Louisiana is. Louisiana is. That's about as much as I know. During the Battle of <laughs> I'm just going to apologize right now. Now, George Randall. George Randall is a strategic advisor to EF Overwatch. He's a former U.S. Army officer, and he's a vice president of global talent acquisition at Force Point which is a human-centric cybersecurity company. Now, George has more than two decades of experience in talent acquisition at Fortune 100 and Fortune 1000 firms. He is also an experienced veteran, coach, mentor, and hands-on leader known for selecting building and reorganizing teams. (laughs) I can do this to reach their full their full potential. Maybe I can't do it. So George combines 20 plus years of Fortune 100 and Fortune 1000 global human resources and talent acquisition executive. Guys, I'm so sorry. It's, I have no idea. It's Monday. I'm just going to blame it on Monday. Executive experience enabling individuals, teams, and organizations to achieve consistent, impactful outcomes. He is Hogan, HPI, HDS, and MVP Leadership Assessment Certified. Gentlemen, welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. How about if I ask you guys to do all the talking and I'll just shut up now? <laughs> well, Denise, I'm going to tell you. I'll, I'll let um, Mike go first. <laughs> uh, George, I was going to say, you know, um, our publisher, when we did the audio recording for the book, warned us that uh, it was going to be uh, taxing mentally. And, of course, George and I, uh, you know, uh, being confident from our time in the military, he said, hey, we're not going to have any problem whatsoever. So eight hours of reading our own book, we started to slur on every other word. And when we were done by 4 p.m., we had multiple days in the studio. Uh, George and I went promptly home uh, to our respective homes and passed out. So we're, we're with you. You know, some days I can actually 
form full sentences. Some days, not so much. So I'm so glad to know <laughs> that I am not alone in this. And I've been doing this for 13 years. You'd think I'd be a professional right now. Nope, not even close. So this is why I invite incredible guests on the podcast because you guys just make me look so much better than I really am. But you two have phenomenal history. So if you, well, George, I'm, I'm sorry, Mark was going to go first. What did I miss when I was trying to introduce you? Is there anything else that, that our audience needs to know? Oh, and by the way, y'all will be coming back on Friday, so we, we don't need to rush through this. So whatever you have to say, go for it. George? Well, no, I think you did a, a great job. The only thing is uh, that we didn't get a change to you is that as of this weekend, we have changed from EF Overwatch to the Talent War Group uh, based on the success of the book. And uh, no, you got our introductions right. Uh, Mike and I came together about three years ago, two people passionate and nerding out on talent. Um, and Mike called me one night and says, hey, we got to write a book. And I'm like, well, yeah, okay, that sounds good. And so between the two of us, you know, um, what we were really trying to do was bring the best of, you know, Mike served in the world, and he'll tell you about it, with some of the most elite people, amazing, indescribable people on the planet. And, you know, I've spent all this time in recruiting in corporate America, and there's so many books on Navy SEALs and so many books on, you know, recruiting and staffing and behavioral analysis and all that. And, you know, Mike had a brilliant idea, and we kind of brought it together, and, and so glad we did. You know, I've been reading – I started the book yesterday. I actually read four books yesterday. You, George, you commented on Facebook that yours was the easiest, right? No, it wasn't. <laughs> it's a very complex book. It's, it's, I think, an easy concept, but you guys have so much to bring to the table that I suspect, and this is just me, you know, kind of meandering around, that you had to really edit it to kind of stay on track. You've just got so much to say. You, you know, yeah, for George I, and I, go ahead, Mike. We'll, we'll take that one. Yeah, George, I was just going to say, you know, um, was writing this book hard? Uh, absolutely. Why? Because it was the first time either of us had done anything of the sort. Um, but the reason we, we, we sort of paired up to do this is, one, uh, George is like a brother to me, um, you know, to, to, to drive that home. Uh, my wife and I asked him to serve as, uh, as the pastor uh, at our wedding, or the officiant, I should say. Um, and, and we said, hey, let's have fun with this. We, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what the outcome will look like. Um, but we will become better uh, having gone through the process of researching uh, you know, different systems or different forms of talent acquisition from special operations to uh, pretty much every private sector industry. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the journey um, and how much it has evolved, George and I, uh, is immense, it, even to the point where we switched. Uh, I would say we, we, we adapted how we thought uh, about uh, how you build winning teams. You know, we had preconceived notions based off our limited experiences, and everyone has limited experiences, um, and I think that's where the, the true learning for us uh, took place was taking a deeper look at, at this, challenging one another uh, on our notions or, or preconceived uh, notions um, and, and really being receptive to, uh, to evolving throughout the process. And I have to ask you, when 
talent acquisition, it's been around for a long time. This is not a new idea. But it doesn't seem to be an idea that actually works really all that well, particularly now with, you know, COVID and pandemic and people being shut down and people kind of mildly to moderately losing their minds on a daily basis. How do you help? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the reasons that we we wrote the book, there were a lot of reasons, a lot of things that we had, like Mike said, this process. We got so much better through it and learned so much. But, yeah, recruiting and hiring people has been around forever. The challenge is that it's never been looked at as the most important subset of leadership, which is building your teams. And so you get you get recruiting agencies, you get staffing teams, people teams, whatever the label in HR, and they're kind of backbench. They're second tier in the company ecosystem. And so while the concept has been around a long time, it, it seems that people, despite the examples that we put in the book, you know, whether it's Kodak or Barry or Enron, Wells Fargo, any number of companies haven't learned the lesson that HR and talent acquisition has to be on par and even with the rest of your company's ecosystem because it's talent that propels you forward. Well, isn't that the most important thing? I mean, one of the things that you talk about in the very beginning of your book, you're saying of 800 CEOs polled in 2019, which was not that long ago, the overwhelming majority of CEOs cited the ability to attract and retain, which is important, quality workers is their top concern. But they're not really able to retain them, are they, from what I can see? And, Denise, I would say, you know, sort of a segue on what, what, what George has said is, the, the human resources space is ripe for uh, disruption, even though it's been around for centuries. Um, it, it just hasn't evolved to the degree that George and I would like to see it uh, evolve to. Um, you, you know, some of the best people in any company, much like special operations, you know, we put our very best in charge of training, assessment, selection, as we call it, because we know that A players will absolutely select people that are better than them people that will come in and challenge them or or even raise the bar on them, Um, not out of fear, but out of concern or or your your desire to make the organization the uh, the, the very best. So uh, I think HR has yet to – it it just hasn't been disrupted the way George and I uh, intend to uh, do it over the next few uh, decades. Let's talk about that because I know several HR people, and they're very talented they're also very mm-hmm. frustrated right now, very. Yeah. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. look, I don't have a large company. My, I work and live by myself. I have a great team, but they're scattered all over the globe. I don't have those kinds of problems, but I know a lot of people who do. And with everything changing, reorganizing, changing back, people just kind of going, what the heck is going on? It would seem to me that HR needs to kind of pull up their panties and do something different. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, you know, the other thing when you mentioned that survey and Mike and I just came back and we were just talking to a group and, you know, we, we would pose questions to the group. And and one of those questions was, how many people have seen the values on a wall that 
the leaders don't live up to or that don't describe the culture. It's the same thing with that survey is you get a ton of leaders saying, yes, this is our top problem. And so they've taken the survey and they've given us some nice words. How they act is something different. Now, Mike and I are absolutely adamant that this isn't necessarily a C-suite or non-HR problem. You're absolutely right. HR has got to really step up to the plate and recognize, and, and we put the quote in the book that Tracy Keogh gave us when somebody looked at her and said, hey, we're glad HR's at the table. HR has to understand exactly what Tracy said in response, which is HR is the table. And they have to act that way. They have to be students of the business. They have to be strategic. They have to be tied at the hip with all of the C-suite members because talent is what powers every part of your business. And see, that makes perfect sense. So why, and this is just my observation, I really don't have any experience in HR other than working with some of my clients who are HR experts and listening to their genuine frustration. They, They seem to feel like their role these days is to just not get their company sued, which is sad. <laughs> yeah, when, when you're motivated from a point of fear, um, you become risk-averse, uh, and we can understand that. It, it's, it's much more a, a role of compliance than it is trying to move the organization forward, and, and that's where, it, you know, for a lot of these days, HR people, we're, we're not letting them off the hook, but if they don't have the support of their leadership, um, it, it really is difficult to do what you think is best for the organization. So let me ask you this. You're saying leadership and you're saying HR. Are they not – are they very separate still, or is – does leadership seriously not view HR as part of leadership? seems to me like they ought to. They should, they should be the same, and I'll let George weigh in here, but uh, the, the bottom line is if they're not at the table, um, then organizations are missing out on really creating a best-in-class talent acquisition and talent management system. George? Yeah, I. so first of all, there's plenty of CEOs who aren't leaders. They're managers. And so, you know, Mike and I think the most important thing in the entire world, how we grew up, you know, is leadership. And I think what happened to HR in, in a lot of companies, there's a lot of people out there doing it right. But they get so caught up in the payroll, the benefits, the total rewards, the L&D, the performance management, the compliance, the – health and welfare, the new diversity, inclusion, and equity programs, that, that they're so focused on the administrative side of the equation of HR. And those are important because those are elements that take care of your people, making sure they get paid on time, making sure they have benefits, making sure they have a good work environment. And I know that they're stressed out from all of the COVID challenges they've had. But it doesn't excuse them from leading the way in their space from a strategic point of view, thinking what are our human capital needs in the future, helping the leaders identify where they have talent gaps, helping them understand that hiring isn't just something mechanical that we do. It's the lifeblood of what we do. And it's as important as the financial capital and the financial drills that you go through on an every other week basis. You need to be doing that with your talent as well. So that piece, we don't tell HR to ignore the administrative and the operational side, the system side, but we do try to give them a roadmap to step up to the plate in a strategic fashion and be the true storytellers of the value of human capital. 
And you said something earlier about really smart leaders, leaders who are really doing their absolute best for the people in their organizations will hire people or talent that are smarter than they are, better at something they are. Listen, I do the same. So I'm completely on board with that. But would you expand on that a little bit? Because I can hear people going, I'm not going to bring in somebody who's better than me. He's going to take my job. That's not what you're talking about at all, is it? That's that, that's 100% driven by ego, and, and we all struggle with uh, with our ego. Yeah, I'll put it to you this way: Would you rather be part? Would you rather be the the uh, the star player on a losing team, or would you no. rather be you know third in line in terms of performance on a team that just dominates the rest of the competition? I'll take the winning team any day of the week. And so, as humans, we struggle with uh, our, our, our selfishness, or I should say, selflessness. And A players, what really separates them is they're described by something I like to call humble confidence. Humble that they do not have all the answers, that they are never the smartest man or woman in the room. Confident they can tackle any obstacle. But what's unique about these A players beyond that is they have the ability to look at younger or older talent uh, in any shape, form, or size and pull people that are going to accelerate their organization forward. What a lot of people have lost sight of is that if whatever organization you belong to, whether it's private sector, public sector, the government, or even military, if the organization as a whole is stronger, then that means you, as, a, some, as one of the parts, are stronger as well. If the company does better, if revenue is up, if profit uh, margins are, are, are accelerating, then that means I do better as well as my family does better. And there really is a deficit, Denise. What we're talking about here is a deficit in leadership in this nation right now. Um, and it's at an all-time high. Uh, simply look at the national capital region, where we expect our leadership to be the best, and we get the complete opposite. Now, they're supposed to set the example. When they don't set the example, how do you expect private sector uh, leaders to, to emulate, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the right form of leadership? And leadership is one of those kind of nebulous terms, if you will, that people go, oh, well, I understand leadership. I don't think we really do. I think we do see it through the prism of our own biases, our own experiences, our own neglect of learning more about it. So what do people do? Because you you say that the true importance of talent is the true importance. So what is that? What does that mean to you? How do you... How do you find this talent? How do you just walk away from your biases, I guess, is my big question, because that's a toughie. Well, let let me dissect that, and I'm going to turn it over to George here. One, um, you know, people say they understand leadership, but point to me what leadership development school people have been through that that say they understand it. Uh, Here's here's an undeniable fact and, and just not open to debate is the U.S. military is the world's greatest leadership development platform, period. It's a 245-year-old institution, and the Army and the Marine Corps practically wrote the book on leadership. And a lot of people get what they get wrong about the military is these preconceived notions of what they see in, in uh, you know, Hollywood. It does not paint us in a great light. I've worked for world-class leaders by the name of General Stanley McChrystal or Admiral William, William McCriven. I'm telling you, they are – um, they, they both cut from the same cloth, but leaders that we would want our young men and women to emulate. So people say they understand leadership, but if they've not seen a good example of it in practice, 
than they themselves don't know how to put it into practice. And understanding the principles of leadership is very different than putting it into application. As we like to say, leadership at the root of it is easy. It's just hard to apply it because you're constantly dealing with, uh, with people. Now, as for, for talent, I'll, I'll turn that over to, uh, to George. Yeah, you know, we start out in the book, um, to your point about biases, is that you can't see talent. And early in our careers, Mike and I both, you know, we would bring any number of biases to the table, you know, all based on our experiences. And we were very fortunate to learn very early that you can't see talent. You just can't. And so you have to design, first of all, you have to define what success looks like for talent. There's all kinds of different talent. There are all kinds of different roles. So you have to define success for a particular role, those attributes that we talk about in the book. And then you have to design a process that reveals that talent to be there or to not be there so you can exclude the candidate. But you have to take away your biases, and the best way to do that is creating a, a standardized process. Now, you know, we don't talk about locking down things 100%. Every word's the same. Every scorecard's the same. Each company has to do it for themselves, and they have to do it in a way, and we provide a roadmap in the book. But, you know, when Mike and I were just talking, you know, when Mike gave an example in our book about looking at the people coming to the BUDS course, you know, he had preconceived notions as to who, who would make it, who wouldn't. When I was first a company commander, I would look at people in my company and I'm like, oh, I'm going to have a problem. They're not going to develop. Well, when I got out, I started in talent acquisition. I, that ego took over and I thought, wow, you know, I can, I can see talent. And now north of 80,000 hires, the one thing I tell people is I've, I've hired more people than most at scale my teams have. But I've been able to put that ego aside, and I've learned my lessons, and now I make sure that I trust the process that we put in place. And will we always get it right? No. But we will always evolve. We will always get better at putting a process in place to get the absolute best and keep improving from there. Denise, are you there? Yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm muted you and then I was just chatting away. My guess is, you know, listening to the process that you can put people through or ask them to go through when they want to to join a company or the military or wherever it is that they're going to go, that at the end of it, they may be fussing a bit going, oh, geez, really, I have to go through all this? But my guess is they find out so much about themselves and where they can really fit that they are probably deeply appreciative of what you do for them. Well, yeah, I think, you know, we've all done this. And, you know, I use Mike as, a, as an example. And, you know, I go back to, you know, A players want to work with A players. You run into Mike, you're like, okay, I got to work with, work for, or I got to be associated, which is kind of how we came together. But, you know, when, when we do interviews or when Mike's gone through any one of his schools, if those were easy schools to get through, easy qualification courses, you know, it wouldn't have driven him. If I go to a company and I interview and the process is simple and it's easy and I get asked the same version or a slightly different version of the same question over and over and over and I get an offer, as an A player, I'm going, 
gee, how how competitive is this company? How driven is this company? How bad do they want to win in their space? How how desperate are they to constantly improve and win and, and make a profit? And so when I've interviewed with harder companies, it's like, wow, I really need to bring my A game. And I think to your point, Denise, that's what fascinates A players. And Mike's got a great story about how he even – you know, got into the U.S. military by seeing somebody that was holding such an exceptionally high standard. It was a magnet for him. I would love to hear that yeah, story. That, that, that is a good story and uh, powerful, I think. Uh, you know, the bottom line here is a lot of companies are not telling the, the amazing story uh, of their, uh, their, their, their leaders internal through the company. Uh, and in that vein, a lot of people within companies are, are failing to realize that they – ultimately are the greatest talent magnet for their organizations, that when they're out in town, people are watching. Uh, you know, a good friend of mine, Joseph Koster, uh, recently said, people will be what people can see. And so, believe it or not, people are watching. They're watching you represent your organization at all times. When I was 18, 19, I met a forced recon Marine uh, by the name of Ben. Ben was, uh, you know, about 5'10", uh, you know, uh, physical stature the guy was, was built. Um, and, you know, I'm 19, probably 130 pounds, sopping wet. And everything about this individual was impressive. People gravitated towards him. Uh, he was humbly confident. He was respectful. Uh, you know, smiled in the face of failure, got up and, and, and reattacked until he got something right. Uh, he was, as, as I could say, the consummate human. And because I'd met and had uh, interactions with, with this amazing individual, um, with this, this, this good American, uh, I basically said, I want to be a part of that organization. Whatever organization that guy belongs to, that's what I need to do next, and that's what drove me to join the Marine Corps. And, you know, subsequently, I, I did make it into the Marine Recon community uh, and then actually became a scout member as well. And I, I'm guessing, just from listening to you, both of you, that you're not really prone to listen too, too much to what people say. You're a lot more prone to watch what people do. Is that correct? <laughs> oh, I know George is probably laughing right now. Okay, leadership George, is go. not a title. I know. It, uh, leadership is not a title. Uh, it, it's not a position. Leadership is a set of behaviors. And that's where, we, you know, that phrase from Joseph Kopser, people will be what people uh, can see. And there's a lot of people right now that think you just have to talk about the principles of leadership and that merely means you're a leader. No. It's what you do in your day-to-day -day behaviors. It's what you do when you're pushed to your mental and physical limits and your people see you. Um, that's the true definition of leader, leadership. Now, what a, a lot of companies uh, have you know, been doing is they, they come up with core values of what they think defines the, the organization, and then they throw those, flower, uh, those flowery uh, words up on the wall in their very lavish uh, corporate buildings. Uh, and, in fact, there was one organization that had four letters or four words on the wall. Integrity, respect, excellence, and communication. And that organization was Enron. And if that's not mm. an example of people preaching a, a, a big game, yeah. but then doing the exact opposite, that's, that's the opposite of what leadership is. Well, and I see this when I watch our, our government. I don't see leadership for the most part. I just don't. I see an awful lot of yapping, though. And none of it makes sense to me. It's just, I don't know, if they're no, not, these are not my, leaders. And when Mike people and say, I, oh, our, our leaders, no, they're not my leader. No. 
Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things, you know, we bring up is there's a certain amount of ego in a human being that's absolutely good, that's going to propel you to get better, the good side of ego. And then there's that bad side, that hubris. And, and I think that's what you're seeing and what Mike uh, alluded to earlier is if you look in the national capital region, it's about power. It's not about leadership. It's not about accomplishing something, making our nation stronger. It's it's about holding on to your butt in that leather seat um, and staying there for as long as you can. And um, we're, you know, we have, we have a really strong bias because as Mike said, we, we have worked for some of the most uh, amazing leaders. I, I worked, my first senior mentor in Berlin was a survivor of the Holocaust. And he escaped and went on eventually to command the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center. And, and, and Mike and I just worked with some people that, that put everybody else first but can lead the way and are humbly confident. And yeah, we certainly don't have enough of that today. Can you give us some examples? I mean, I'm, I'm not asking for names, obviously, but can you give us some examples of people that you work with that just make you go, they get it, they understand what we're talking about, we can learn from them? Uh, I think this is where George and I get frustrated. Uh, are we wildly proud of our time in the military? Yes. Uh, not because of what we did uh, as individuals, but for the men and women we were surrounded with. Uh, you know, Today, U.S. society sort of, you know, every, everyone thanks us for our service, but they, they really do have some bad preconceived notions about what the military is. And what they really don't realize is that we lead through love. I guarantee you I loved my men and women much more than I hated the enemy over there. And it was through that love um, that I was willing to put my life on the line for them as they were for me. Now, where I think a lot of people are going wrong is, you know, compassion. You know, one of the most compassionate things you can do as a leader is hold people accountable, is to hold them accountable with the love and the intent to make them better. Uh, people don't get better if you approach them and just tell them everything they do well, but don't focus on the things that they need to improve. And, you know, you talk about the national capital region, is we lack leaders that are uh, willing to make the tough decisions because it won't be politically popular. But that's what we're actually electing them for. Uh, in the military, it is part of the culture from day one. Whether you come in as an officer or you go to boot camp as an enlisted man or woman, uh, leadership is the foundation of those, those uh, assessment selection programs and training programs. And every time you pick up a rank within the military, you're going to another leadership school. We're continually going back to the basics. Uh, and even then, even though we put some of the people through the world's best leadership development programs, uh, it doesn't stick. But as a whole, if this nation is looking for uh, examples of just uh, amazing leadership, there's no deficit uh, of it in the military. Or go to uh, Arlington, where you'll see row upon row of white markers of men and women that were willing to put country above self to protect other people and demonstrate leadership on the battlefield and unfortunately lost their lives in the process. I love to watch the man, and I, I'm not sure what his title is, but when he walks those steps every day, that, I don't know why, is so impressive to me, but it just is. I think it's a, you know, it's a great example, you know, of the discipline, of the dedication, of the commitment to something higher than self. And, 
we've seen it in some of the companies um, that we've worked with, and we've seen some fabulous companies who are getting it right, who are just trying to put a sharper edge on the knife. But, you know, we don't have a tax problem. We don't have a culture problem. We don't have a spending problem. We don't have an infrastructure problem. We have a leadership problem. And I, I know Mike and I are just – we could not be more grateful uh, that we grew up in the environment uh, that we did because we understand that basically every problem is a leadership problem. And if you've got leadership, you know, we put it in the book. Talent plus leadership equals victory, and it's as simple as that. Uh, and thank you, because I agree with you. But, and, you know, one of the the titles, one of your, your uh, chapters here, Do You Have a Talent Problem? And you say that companies like the military on a battlefield cannot afford underperformance. And if your company is underperforming, you have a talent problem. Let's talk about that a little bit because you've got six, yeah, six different topics that you you cover here, and I think they're important for our audience to know about. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's amazing when we walk in and we, and we talk about those areas. What we were trying to do was basically put some rather obvious signs out there that you have a talent problem, although most people looking at those problems that your sales are down, uh, they'll see it as a product issue. They'll see it as a systems issue, uh, a coverage issue, that they don't have a, you know, uh, enough people or, you know, orders getting to market is slow. You know, your, your profits are down. So they think that's a matter of our pricing is off. They don't see it as a talent issue. You know, innovation. Uh, we're not innovating fast enough. We're not updating our products. We're not updating our services. We're not updating our marketing and what, what we bring to, you know, that drives our revenue. And that's a talent problem. And we put all of those signs out there really to get people to, to understand or to shine a light on the fact that talent is what powers your innovation. It powers your sales, your product, your services, Everything in your company, it begins and ends with talent. And those were just simple signs that we were trying to get people to shift their mindset away from looking at extraneous issues and starting first with the talent. And actually, and you, you could argue one, one of the things yeah. that George and I have been talking about, we, we sort of subtly added a seventh uh, bullet to uh, identifying whether you have a talent problem or if you're winning on talent, and that is – Achieving the ultimate form of culture within any organization, regardless if you're in, in business or in the military, and that's uh, a culture of decentralized command. And basically, you can determine as a business leader whether you have a culture of decentralized command for one question. And usually, if we're being honest with ourselves, the answer is no or we're not quite there. And that, that, that question is, do you have the right people in the right positions, or if you want to call them in the right seats, who have the training who have the integrity and ethics to solve problems at their own level or seize opportunities on behalf of the organization. And again, that is a very difficult question to answer yes for any leader, but that's ultimately what you're trying to achieve. And General McChrystal, Stanley McChrystal wrote about it in the book uh, called Team of Teams. In the instrumental transformational leadership that he demonstrated to turn the Joint Special Operations Command into arguably one of the most effective 
uh, government agencies in the United States. And, you know, it, it can be talent and integrity and ethics. Those are also important, and training can be had. But and you, while you're talking, I'm thinking about a lowly window person, you know, drive through window at Chick-fil-A. This was years ago. I have never forgotten this guy. I'm not much for going through drive through windows, but I was hungry and I'd heard about Chick-fil-A. So I stood in line with my car. It took a long time to get through that line. But I have to tell you, I was so impressed with the young man who took my order. He was friendly. He made sure that I knew everything that I should know because I had never been there. He was patient, and he was absolutely lovely. That was probably 10 years ago. I have not forgotten that. And I hope that they put him or kept him where he needed to be, not necessarily management, I wouldn't think, but I really hope he's still there in that that company somewhere because – he made them proud. You know, that's a great example of what Mike just talked about, decentralized command, is that person was number one, first of all, their talent. They are trained and taught and coached and mentored what great service looks like. And then they're empowered to do right by the customer, not to do things right by a manual, but to do things, the right thing for the customer to make sure that they had or have the experience that you had. And so when people are empowered to make their world, their section of a company better, it's the ultimate form of culture. See, that makes sense. And so often, like AT&T, Honestly, try to get an answer about anything out of AT&T. It, put it in the parlance of the Deep South. That ain't happening, hon. You're going to talk to 10 different people. You're going to get 10 different answers, and you're going to walk off really mad. They're not empowered. They have to you know, look at their little menu. They have to talk to somebody. You know, Let me go get my, my manager. They can't do anything on their own, and that's just wrong. Yeah, and, and, you know, we've, we've seen it. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry, I was going to say that is, uh, is reflective of a talent problem, not only finding yeah. the, the, the talent necessary to drive the organization, but here's, and here's the spoiler alert. George, myself, and three other amazing uh, gentlemen are start, starting the sequel to the talent war, uh, which will be all about now that you've made the higher – how do you manage your talent and how do you develop your talent? So we could say things are development and talent management. Um, you know, a lot of companies, again, just don't understand this. What is an organic skill to the military is regardless if you make a good hire or not, your job is to now train them, and as George said, empower them um, and continually pour into them. Even if you make a bad hire, can you turn that person, a B or C player, into an A player? Yes, you can. It's harder to do, but it's not impossible. And very few companies, in fact, I think I've got to go back and find the statistic uh, on the amount spent per uh, employee, but leadership in terms of uh, leadership development, uh, it's at an all-time low within the, uh, the corporate world. George. Why is that? People, well, I think there are, you know, there are a multitude of reasons. Yeah, I, and, you know, we're going to, we have started to dig into that uh, in our, in our sequel. Um, it's one of those things, if we go back to HR being the strategic empowered organization that it should be, they run leadership and development, L&D, 
um, or performance management as a separate segment, and it's more check the block. It's not results-oriented. It's not designed to assess your talent and figure out what your talent needs. It's, it's the software system. It's this learning management system. How many courses have they taken? We've made this available to you. Versus the personal investment of mentorship and coaching and developing better leaders. Um, it, it, it's, it's almost L&D in many places has become like almost like payroll. It's, it's mechanical. It's system-driven. It's not people and leader-driven. And you, Mike instituted something in, in the talent work group is every week we have, first of all, we, we have hired people so much smarter than us, thank God. But we do training on financial matters, on bookkeeping, on investment, on working with candidates, on working with clients. There is an unlimited amount of topics, but we take the time, even in our small firm, to make sure that we are training and making our people better on the whole, not just in their particular function. So what you're talking about here, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that you're hiring for character and then training for skill. Does that about sum it up? It does. However, uh, there's much more that goes beyond skill, and that's continually developing, you know, someone's character. Uh, it is a never-ending battle. You know, there's a, a funny story about uh, Henry Ford, uh, who we can all agree is one of the most innovative men of, our, uh, men of the, uh, the 20th century, uh, to include the, the, the forefather of the modern uh, highway system. And as the story goes, at a board meeting, uh, Ford was arguing about uh, pouring into uh, their people. And one of the board members said, well, what if we spend all this money investing in our people and, uh, and one of them leaves? And Henry Ford looked at the board and said, what if we don't and they stay? Right. Within the military, within the military, we're constantly training our people, and, and every, you know the the the, um, the the consequences of higher leadership positions become more and more severe. So it's just not the hard skills uh, of doing the job. It's it's actually the character and making sure that we're going back and assessing our integrity uh, and all the nine foundational attributes that 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 we uh, we talked about in the book. It never stops. Everyone is a WIP, a work in progress. Anyone who says, I've got leadership figured out, is full of you-know-what, and life will humble them. Just give them, uh, give them time. Um, it, this is something we're passionate about, and in fact, we, we practice what we preach. Uh, every other week, uh, we started out every week, but every other week between 9 to 9.30, we conduct leadership development training with our team members, everyone. It's all hands, and it could be about the hard skills uh, of the industry or it could be talking about stories from the military of where I failed, and it wasn't because of the lack of uh, technical knowledge. It was because I failed as a, uh, as a leader. Um, you have to constantly coach and mentor your people. And here's why a lot of companies don't do well. It's because they don't have the, the knowledge to do it. No one, they, you know, the leaders that are in high positions have not learned from previous mentors on how to coach and mentor people and develop them. And that makes sense to me because I see that really everywhere you'll see it in the grocery store you're going to see it practically wherever in families so what can people do what should they be looking at what should they be studying internally about themselves well it does start with yourself 
absolutely start to yourself. Um, you know, Jeff Willink and Rick Babin did a good job with this on extreme ownership uh, and really addressing ego. You know, if you're the leader of a company and one of your young employees does something, let's, let's say they do something stupid. Uh, what most leaders do is they point fingers and cast blame and, and, and blame that young employee. But a truly uh, mature seasoned leader knows that the, the first step is to look in the mirror and do a broad, uh, honest and brutal assessment of themselves. Uh, and George and I do this. If something within our company fails, it's not because somebody wanted to fail. At the end of the day, they wanted the company to do better. It's because we, we failed them. And ultimately, our job in the face of failure as leaders is to come in and help that young employee learn and actually become better through that failure because they've taken away some great lessons learned. Uh, this is what we call the after-action review. And they're actually more equipped uh, to, to, to go forward and do better and, and great things. So, it, you know, it is an endless process. Hence, uh, I think we, we've pretty much got the, the, the title of the book for, uh, for this uh, sequel uh, nailed down because leadership development never stops. I'd love to say it does, but it doesn't. Uh, even if you train somebody for 20 years, uh, you know, eventually they retire. And guess what? You're, you're back at uh, square one, training the younger generation uh, to step up and uh, lead in their absence. So what are some of the simple frameworks that people can adopt to become better leaders? Listen, I like to think that I'm a good leader. I know good and well I'm probably not. But that doesn't mean I'm not willing to work on it. Well, you know, for me um... – you know, one, some of the simple things, just for listeners, and if you walk into our office, I, you know, we obviously have lots of copies because we, you know, we sell them for, our, you know, our book, The Talent War. But there's probably a good 100 to 200 leadership and business books. Mike and I are both voracious readers. We give, you know, books. We buy books for people on our team. I think a simple step is constantly improving your knowledge base when it comes to leadership. I mean, Stanley McChrystal wrote Team of Teams. There's a million things you can take out of that. About Face, a leadership book. There, the list is endless of things that you could be learning about how successful leaders have stumbled, how they have managed the climbing wall of a career. You know, reading about other people because – you know, most of the time, like Mike and I, we would, even in the military, you know, there's a bell curve of leaders. You would see good ones, you would see mediocre ones, and you would see bad ones. And you're taking equal amounts from, from all of them, what not to do, what you would improve on, how you would do things differently. And reading is really one of the easiest and first steps that you can do from an individual self-improvement perspective. Listen, you know, when I tell you – Go ahead. I'm going to tell you very quickly. When I spent this sure. the weekend reading your book, and in some ways it's an easy read. Some ways it's like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. And other parts had me going, this is emotional. I have to walk away. Just, I just wanted you guys to know it's not a difficult read, but it's an emotional read. And it's a read that has you going, huh, I never thought of that. So anybody who's listening, get the book. Seriously. Okay. Go ahead, Mike. I'm we, sorry. We, we, we did that by design. Uh, oh, you know, this is your that makes sense. We, 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 love, we, we, we love to read. There's great books. We didn't want to go uh, deep and, and talk about 
uh, you know, leadership uh, as, as, you know, as per the cognitive uh, ability and, the, and how the brain plays in the leadership. We, we, we wanted to keep this simple and straightforward and hopefully give a few nuggets that people could take away, such as you're asking. You know, George and I continue to read on leadership. And let's be honest, there's, new, there's, there's no new concepts uh, in any book that comes out about leadership. What they are saying is these different leaders, if you read any of their books from extreme ownership to team teams to uh, Ray Dalio's principles, there's common threads amongst all these books. They're all saying the same thing. But sometimes as human beings, we need repetition to beat it into us that says, hey, I studied uh, this book from a, from, a, from a general in the military, this individual who ran a uh, hedge fund, and this individual, uh, you know, uh, you know, Mark Andreessen or Ben Horowitz who read books from the, uh, the tech sector. They're all saying the, uh, the same things. The other thing, too, that people fail to study is bad leaders. You can almost learn more from bad leaders than you can from good leaders. Knowing what not to do is almost as valuable as knowing what to do. And with bad leaders, you can sort of reverse engineer and, and identify all the things that you don't ever want to do. Now, Denise, you said something. You, you said you would like to think you're a good leader. <laughs> I hope. I don't know. I, I would love to think. I would love to think I'm a, I'm a good leader uh, as well. At the end of the day, we don't get to determine that. The, there you the, go. The only source, the only source uh, in determination of whether we're a good or a bad leader is the people that, uh, that are uh, underneath us. They ultimately make that, that determination. Uh, and so as you say, you know, what are the steps to become a better leader? Also pull in, pull in your second in command. Pull in your young employee and ask them, and you're probably going to blow their mind when you ask them, how am I doing as a leader? Where can I improve? What do I need to do differently? And a lot of leaders don't like that. They don't like receiving feedback from their subordinates um, because, of, again, it goes back to their ego. Well, I have the same problem. When I first started my company, I had to bring on a team. Nobody taught, There was nobody around to teach me how to do this. I had to do it on my own. And listen, as a techie nerd... As a web developer, I know everything, right? I do it best. And it turns out I don't really. But I had to find, I had to get out of my own way and ask my team, look, I've been doing this particular task this way, but you are more in this, this particular field than I am because this is all you do. I'm doing everything. What do you suggest? And all of a sudden, I realized that if I wasn't asking my team for input, I might as well just shut it down. took me a while. My ego just went, oh, that sucked. But it was the right thing to do and still is. You, you yeah, know what, George? So many times. Maybe a good example here. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say Google. Google Project Oxygen, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, please do. You do it. I need you to hammer that one. <laughs> okay, so – you know, uh, I think you'll appreciate this coming from a, uh, a tech-based company. Is Google conducted something we call Project Oxygen? There's there's many facets to the uh, to the research, but they also wanted to identify what makes their best managers so good, and they came up with a criteria of ten things. Technical knowledge came in close to last at number eight out of ten. Now, the the top three things of what made the best managers at Google so great was their ability to coach and be mentors their ability to, uh, to help you know, facilitate vision for the team, where they were headed, and what needed to, uh, to happen to get there. I mean, those are powerful things. And, and as we look at leadership, 
Again, that is not the technical component. That's not the hard skills of the job. That's the soft side of someone who has the ability to check their ego, to be selfless, to, to focus on their team, to, to remove obstacles in, in front of their team so that they can do what they do and achieve success for the organization. And doesn't empathy play a big part in that? You have to be able to actually sit and shut up and listen, and oftentimes not with your ears. You need to kind of read between the lines. And I know I've just went from reading to listening, but I think you understand. If you're, if you're not employing empathy as one of your soft skills, you might be missing an awful lot. Yeah, I, I think, think those are two big words. <laughs> George, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, let me give you a phrase that I, I learned from Mike, um, which is the best idea wins. So if you're not listening, you're you're just not going to improve. And you never know when you're working with the people on your team. One of the greatest gifts that you can give them is to listen is to have that empathy, is to have that understanding or seek to understand, you know, what challenges they have, how they're coming at a problem, what they're experiencing in their world, you know, what's impacting their world, what's driving their decision-making. You know, empathy, um, you know, you would think, you know, and like Mike talked about, there were, there's quite a few stereotypes of the military that we are, when we are leaders, we're not empathetic. And that is absolutely not the case. Uh, Rich Devaney gave us a, a great phrase called empathy on a dimmer switch, that there are going to be those times where you've got to crank up the empathy. And then there are those times as a leader, and it's all about balance, is when you, you have to put that empathy aside and get on with the mission. But you're absolutely right. If you want to grow and coach and, and be a great mentor and develop truly elite teams, empathy plays a, a, a huge part of that. And when I say empathy, I'm not talking about feel good. That we're not even no, going no. near that garbage. You know, you can feel good on somebody else's time, not mine. <laughs> Ain't gonna happen. There's that word again. Okay, so we've got about five minutes, and and I know we're talking an awful lot about talent work, but you know what? I'd really like to, if you would, because you're going to be coming back, and I want people to have the opportunity to get to know you a bit better. Are either of you willing to share some of the things that happened with you, to you, for you during the military that really impacted how you live your lives now? Yeah. Yeah, I think some of them will will, will condense them down. I think some of them might be a little bit hard for your listeners. But, yeah, I think we could bring to the plate a few examples, one or two. Please do. So do you want to save that for next Friday, or would you like to hear about some of them now in our last five? Let's go ahead and fit in what we can now because, listen, I've read this book. I read it all the way through. I'm reading it again as, you know, today because there were actually parts that I had to highlight and say, okay, go back and read that again. You know, And you're right. When you hear or see or say something and you go back and – you know, maybe your mood has changed. Maybe your your bias has changed. Maybe something has changed, and all of a sudden it's different. I never read a book once. I may read it multiple times, and this is definitely going to be one of those. But, yeah, if you can share a bit more about yourselves, and then we'll just take off again next or Friday, this coming Friday. Um, before we get into probably the, the deeper personal things that impacted me, one of the things that I would say is, 
before I joined the military, I didn't realize how spoiled of a human being I was. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, you grow up, you live in your particular bubble, and you get in the military, and immediately you, you know, for men, your head is shaved, all your clothes are taken away, you're all made into this one lump of camouflage, and, and you're all the same, and you're forced to work together as a team. And so, you know, the first thing is is you realize the value of people, the value of teamwork. But um, one of the things that I would say is, and, and it's not a knock on our citizens or anything, but it profoundly changed me, is all the different places that I've been in the world, I don't think people truly realize how great we have it in the United States. And people talk about poverty, people talk about evil, people talk about war, and it's like they're talking about it from a distance. So for me to be exposed in so many places in the world, like, you know, when I was in Africa, to abject poverty and starvation, where getting a meal every three days was, was a godsend, you really can put your life and your world into perspective and how great we have it. And, you know, gratitude has become an even bigger part of my life because of those experiences. I can well imagine. And listen, people talk about poverty here. Almost everybody has a TV. They have power. They have food or they've got food stamps. I don't understand it. I really don't understand it. Yeah, I like it. And we have water. We have water. (laughs) Seriously, we do. Listen, I live in the hurricane-prone part of the country. We had four hurricanes, well, this last season. I had to have a new roof. You know, my roof was destroyed. Part of my bathroom was destroyed. I always had water. There's always something to be grateful for. Yep. Okay, so Mike, um, you're George, up. Mike. Okay, oh, I'm getting confused. Okay, next. Yeah, no, Denise, this this is not to me. Um, I spent the majority of my military career on the battlefield. Uh, I had ten combat deployments. Uh, most of those with the Joint Special Operations Command, which is the I hate to use the the the, uh, the term, but the tip of the spear, going after the worst of the worst. And when you're in that profession, you you lose guys. And so I've lost a lot of my brothers, um, some inches a feet from me. Uh, one in particular jumped on a grenade three feet from me and uh, gave his life so that uh, myself and another SEAL could live, uh, though we were wounded uh, from the grenade still. Um, you know, we were, we were fortunate to come home because of the sacrifice he made. So when, when you, you go through something like that, um, it, it puts a – it dampens – your, your military experience, um, and, and there's a day that goes by that I don't think about those guys and, and either cry my, my, my eyes out or, um, or or just dampens my overall sort of, uh, of mood. But, um, you, you know, from that, though, the, the, from the, uh, the bad, there is a positive. I consider myself lucky, as I know, you know a lot of the guys that, that came back to have watched such selfless valor uh, of my men and women on almost a nightly basis. Um, and, and again, people who think, uh, you know, we don't have any heroes anymore, uh, they just don't know where to look. I can't even begin to thank both of you for your service. I have tremendous 
respect for our military and for our police. And it just breaks me when I see the garbage, the ugliness that is happening on social media with these keyboard warriors. I wish they would just find a way to be grateful for what we have, but they are who they are. Gentlemen, thank you so much. I mean, this has been enlightening. It's been touching. I'm going to go cry as soon as we're done. Where can people find you? We can be found at, uh, in fact, EF Overwatch, as of today, uh, we've done a, a rebranding. The name of the company is Talent War Group. They can find us at www.talentwargroup.com. And the book, by the way, is on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle. I think it's 99 cents on Kindle right now. But whatever the the bill is, pay it. It's an incredible book. Mike, I'm serious. Mike and George, it's been seriously fantastic speaking with you, and I very much look forward to talking with you again on Friday. And we'll continue this this conversation because I think you have so much to share. Is there anything else you'd like to remind our audience about before I let you go? Hmm. I don't know, Mike, what's your parting word of wisdom for today? God bless America. Uh, As George said, we've got it pretty good. We've got problems, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, those problems are minor compared to, to other nations. So, Smile, be happy, attitude of gratitude. Amen to that. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Well, thank you. I Seriously, I'm getting kind of weepy. I've got to go. So we will we'll start this up again on Friday, and thank you so, so much. But before I let you go, I'd like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes and anywhere else you consume your business podcast. Just look for your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. Thank you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 